1: Each week on this podcast,
0: we'll break down, analyze, and debate the most important stories on Musk and his empire.
2: It's all one big universe. You just work for Elon, Inc.
0: From Bloomberg Business Week, this is Elon, Inc. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio.
2: For the first time in more than 20 years, the Justice Department is suing to stop the merger of two airlines. Attorney General Merrick Garland announced on Tuesday that the U.S. is filing an antitrust lawsuit to block JetBlue Airways from purchasing Spirit Airlines for $3.8 billion.
3: We allege that if allowed to proceed, this merger will limit choices and drive up ticket prices for passengers across the country. And we further allege that the impact of this merger will be particularly harmful for travelers who rely on what are known as ultra-low-cost carriers in order to fly.
2: This is the second lawsuit against JetBlue by the Biden Justice Department, which is also seeking to unwind its alliance in the Northeast with American Airlines. And the attorney general had a warning for companies in other industries.
3: Companies in every industry should understand by now that this Justice Department will not hesitate to enforce antitrust laws and protect American consumers.
2: Joining me is Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Litigation Analyst Jennifer Ree. This deal would make JetBlue the fifth largest U.S. carrier based on domestic passenger traffic. What would the deal
4: do for JetBlue? Well, I mean, for one reason, because it would make it the fifth largest, but also because it says it needs to do this deal to better compete with the legacy carriers like Delta and United and even Southwest. You know, those air carriers combined have about an 80 percent share, including American in there. And JetBlue wants to be able to better compete. That's one of their main arguments for the deal. JetBlue says the combination would create, quote, the most
2: compelling national low fare challenger to the dominant U.S. carriers. Yet the Justice Department is challenging because they're afraid a merger will drive up the cost of airline
4: tickets for low cost carriers. You know, the thing about it is they're both right, really, at the end of the day, because they're kind of three tiers, right, of fares. You have, like I said, the legacy carriers that tend to have the highest fares. And then you have an airline like JetBlue that's considered a low-cost carrier. The fares are a little bit lower. But then you have Spirit, which is considered an ultra-low-cost carrier. So the fares are a little bit lower. Now, JetBlue does exert a competitive pressure on the legacy airlines. There's no doubt that when JetBlue enters a route, the fares all tend to go down. But Spirit does the same thing. So... So Spirit is now pulling down the fares of all of those legacy carriers in addition to JetBlue. And the Department of Justice's concern is that when JetBlue takes over all the routes that Spirit flies and transforms it into sort of the JetBlue model, it turns from an ultra-low-cost carrier to a low-cost carrier, and it means the fares do go up. So you are losing a choice. For people who want that rock-bottom fare and don't necessarily care about quality or amenities or even space, they lose that choice. Is the cost of the ticket the only reason why the Justice
2: Department is challenging this merger?
4: Well, it's really the main reason why. I mean, you know, mergers get challenged because they can reduce output and they can increase price and they can reduce quality. Now, a reduction in quality isn't really an issue here because JetBlue would probably increase the quality of the Spirit flights. But the other two are the issues, and they're linked, right? It would decrease output because JetBlue would take those Spirit planes and put fewer seats that are bigger, and that reduces output. And a reduction in output ends up increasing price, but JetBlue would also likely increase price because it would increase the amenities and the quality. So it would do those two things, and those are both concerns of the Department of Justice. So tell me what the legal argument is, the antitrust argument that the Department of Justice is going to make. So they're making a couple arguments here. And they're honestly very traditional antitrust arguments. I think we've been hearing about other challenges that the FTC and the DOJ have waged that have been kind of unique and novel and may not have such a chance in in court. But this is really traditional. They say, first, they overlap on certain routes. And for the routes they overlap, you're going to lose that competition. And we already have a consolidated industry. The concentration's too high, and it's presumptively harmful in those routes where they overlap. Now, second, they say that both airlines have plans that they've seen to expand. And so there's this potential competition in the future in these routes where they might expand and compete that'll be lost because that expansion won't happen by one or the other when they become one airline. And then the last part of it is what I've talked about, that for those routes where they don't overlap, JetBlue would effectively be taking out this really ultra-low-cost carrier. It would take over those flights, take out this really low-fared provider, and people who want to fly those routes at the lowest price would lose an option. So it has basically three tiers of arguments. And what's the likely argument that JetBlue is going to make in return? So in these cases, what the judge is tasked with is asking whether there's harm and then balancing that harm, if there is harm, and I think there is here, against any kind of pro-competitive aspects of the deal. And here, what JetBlue will argue is that there's this JetBlue effect, that when it enters a route, that it does exert competitive pressure on all the other airlines, and that fares across the board generally go down for the route. Now, that's been shown to be true, actually. So what a judge is going to have to do is weigh those against each other. And to me, at the end of the day, the Department of justice's evidence is strong in this regard. You know, what you think of as a pro-competitive efficiency, this is this JetBlue effect, rarely wins out when there's actually harm from a deal. And the JetBlue effect doesn't help the companies, again, in those routes that JetBlue is going to take over from Spirit.
2: So this is sort of a non-legal question. The four largest U.S. airlines control 80 percent of the market. So on its face, it seems
4: unfair not to allow JetBlue to get bigger to compete with them. That kind of argument is an argument that's often made in mergers, and it never works where that merger is going to otherwise cause harm. And I think the other important thing is the way you dissect this case and the way the DOJ will present it and the judge will evaluate it is they ask what is the relevant market where competition takes place. So that 80% is talking about the nation. And the airlines don't compete with each other in that respect. They compete for certain routes. So what happens is the DOJ will say this route, this route, they'll lay out the different routes in which they compete from an origin to a destination. And that's what the judge is going to look at, not this 80% share nationwide. And for some routes, JetBlue might itself have 80% share for that route. So that's how it'll look at it. And it's not going to be about that nationwide 80% share that the others have. JetBlue and Spirit offered to
2: divest overlapping routes to try to address the Justice Department's antitrust concerns. And that's a remedy that the Justice Department apparently has accepted in previous airline mergers, but it denied it here. Well, do you think that will be held against
4: the Justice Department? You did it before. You know, why are you now changing the way you're approaching these? I don't think it'll be held against the Justice Department because each merger stands on its own facts. They're all different, and they all have a different competitive impact. So what might have fixed a deal before, if divestitures, may not necessarily fix this one because the facts and the competitive dynamics are different. Now, no doubt, this is a more aggressive DOJ. And this DOJ has said, when we have a problematic deal, we no longer want to accept a remedy like divestitures to clear the deal. And the judge could think about that and could consider that. But It doesn't mean that there aren't other issues and that the deal isn't anti-competitive. So, again, I think that the DOJ has some good arguments here. And I think that those divestitures, while they could fix some routes where the companies compete, they don't fix the other problem I was talking about with JetBlue taking out this ultra-low-cost carrier from those routes that Spirit flies and JetBlue doesn't today.
2: Do you think at this point there's anything that JetBlue could do, to get the Justice Department to back down and approve
4: the merger? I do not. I think this is a really aggressive Justice Department that there already was concern about consolidation and the concentration in the airline industry before this merger was even announced. And I think that they're gonna make it difficult on any other airlines that wanna merge in the future as well.
2: Jen, give us a little history about how the airline
4: industry became so consolidated. Over the years, there were a lot of mergers over, let's say, the last 25 years. And, and today, right, there's this sort of new antitrust movement. And part of that movement is this realization that one by one over the years, too many mergers, not just in the airline industry, but in other industries as well, got cleared with remedies or without remedies by the Department of Justice or Federal Trade Commission. And we suddenly woke up today with a lot of industries that are too consolidated. And because of that, there are problems in those industries like high fares, like low quality. And I think a lot of people would agree that that's something that's going on in the airline industry today. So the Department of Justice and the Federal Trade Commission are kind of trying to make up for that today. And the airline industry is the poster child for those people that think that there's been lax enforcement. I mean, it's one of the first ones, agriculture, the beer industry, pharmaceutical, many. But the airline industry is the very first one that proponents of stronger antitrust enforcement bring up when they talk about too many mergers over the last 20 years being approved. This is the second time, the second lawsuit
2: against Mm -hmm. JetBlue by the Biden Justice Department. So tell us about the
4: other one where that is. Right, so the other one is a challenge to an alliance between JetBlue and American in the Northeast. It really just deals with Boston and New York airports mostly, and it's really one of these these code-sharing alliances that we know about, where you can swap frequent flyer miles and you can book American, but you fly JetBlue and vice versa. But the problem the DOJ had with it is that the companies are sharing capacity information and they're also sharing revenue as part of that alliance. So the DOJ really actually kind of sees it as a merger in that area, and they have some of the same problems with it they have with this. There was already a trial. It completed months ago. And I think pro- actually last year it completed. And I think it's likely that we'll get a decision in the first half of this year. I mean, it could come time. There's no specific you know, timing constraints on the judges. But I do think we'll get a decision in the first half. So tell us about what the timing on this looks like. I mean, has the DOJ
2: already filed the complaint?
4: Yes, they filed it yesterday, and what they're seeking is a permanent injunction. And and that could kind of run from filing to decision anywhere from about six to nine months. So I think, you know, seven to eight months here, we could actually get a decision. And then if the losing party, whichever one it is, ends up appealing, that could tack on another five to six months. But the thing that's interesting here is that JetBlue obviously expected this kind of litigation because the end date in their purchase agreement isn't till July of 2024. And that actually almost gives them time both for this first ruling and an appeal. You seem to indicate that DOJ's
2: case is very strong. So why do you think JetBlue is willing to
4: go to trial and an appeal? You know, I think that they're willing to do that because, again, as I said, the way a judge evaluates these cases is looking at whether there's harm and then balancing the pro-competitive aspects against it. And they have a legitimate argument, right, about pro-competitive effects here. The fact that they could actually exert greater competitive pressure on the Deltas and the Uniteds and Americans of the world, and they may be hoping, because weighing those those two things is kind of subjective, so they may be hoping they get a judge that puts more emphasis on that than on the fact that they'll take out an ultra-low-cost carrier. There's some possibility there that that could happen. And the other thing is that we're beginning to see a bit of a trend where the DOJ and the FTC are rejecting remedy offers, but the judges are a little bit more open to those offers. Now, I I don't actually think that's going to be the case here, but they also may be banking on that, that they have this remedy offer, they'll present it to the judge, they'll present the pro-competitive aspects, they may be able to pull the judge over to their side. We talked before
2: about the DOJ using novel arguments, the antitrust department, but this argument here It's not a novel argument. This is just a tried-and-true argument?
4: Yeah, this is tried-and-true. This is two competitors compete with each other, one taking another competitor out of the market. And that's really the very traditional concern about mergers. And that's the kind of case that, that the DOJ and the FTC usually would bring. You've mentioned today
2: how aggressive on antitrust issues this Justice Department is.
4: Have they accomplished anything, or is it too early to tell? So... I think there's a lot of talk about a pretty bad track record so far now i don 't necessarily agree with that because what part what they have accomplished particularly the FTC with this pressure, is causing deals to get abandoned. And they view that as a win. You know, They're trying to stop a merger. The merger got stopped because companies didn't want to deal with litigation or a challenge and walked away. So they do view that as a win. And, and the FTC has had quite a few abandonments in the last year and a half. Now, where they've gone to trial, that's it's correct that the track record hasn't been great. Um, the DOJ has won one case. They managed to block in trial the merger between Simon & Schuster um, and Penguin Random House. But like the JetBlue spirit deal, that again was traditional. It wasn't really a novel theory. These are two head-to-head competitors that were in a concentrated market. So it was a traditional theory. They won on a fairly traditional theory, even though it was about the impact on writers and labor rather than the price of books, which which is a little bit different. But the others where the theories have been more novel, the agencies, when it's litigated through, haven't had as much luck. The judges have been really siding with the companies. Thanks so much, Jen.
2: That's Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Litigation Analyst Jennifer Reed.
0: Success is more than a destination, it's a path you take one step at a time.
2: The SEC rarely loses an insider trading case, and now it's convinced the Fourth Circuit to reverse one of those rare losses. A judge had abruptly ended the trial of mortgage broker Christopher Clark after the SEC had presented its evidence and before the case was sent to the jury. Judge Claude Hilton said that the agency was simply speculating that Clark received insider information because he was a little too successful in trading. But the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals reversed the judge's decision, ruling that a jury should have decided the case. My guest is corporate law expert James Park, a professor at UCLA Law School. What were the charges against Christopher Clark? He
3: was charged with trading on inside information. He traded in, a, in the stock of a company called Corporate Executive Board, and Corporate Executive Board uh, received a merger offer an offer to merge from another company. And typically when a company is purchased by another company, the stock price goes up the stock of the acquired company is purchased at a premium. And so if you know that in advance, you're going to be able to buy the stock at a lower price with the hope, maybe the knowledge that the stock will go up in price and then you sell the stock at an easy profit. Christopher Clark and his son purchased uh, significant numbers of call options, which give you the right to buy stock at a particular price, right before the merger was announced. And the allegation is that he got information that the merger was going to happen from his brother-in-law, who worked at Corporate Executive Board. Um, His brother-in-law's name is William Wright.
2: So why did the judge dismiss the charges against Clark before the case was sent to the jury? The district court dismissed
3: the charges because the judge believed that there was not sufficient direct evidence for a reasonable jury to conclude that Christopher Clark had received inside information from William Wright. There was no direct evidence that Wright ever spoke to Christopher Clark about the merger, and the defendant argued that Wright didn't even know about the merger until after the decision to merge had already been made. That was the basic argument that the defendants made. And uh, the judge, the district court judge, agreed and said that the case should not go to a jury, but the Fourth Circuit disagreed and reversed that decision to dismiss the case.
2: Is it difficult to get evidence, direct evidence, of insider trading Unless you flip a witness or get a wiretap.
3: It's very difficult because typically the defendant is getting inside information from somebody they have a close relationship to, someone who they trust very much, somebody who in this case was a relative. And so that person is very unlikely to testify against you. Um, That person is unlikely to wear a wiretap to uh, record communications, conveying inside information. I mean, so it's very difficult to establish these cases through direct evidence.
2: Let's talk a little bit about the kind of evidence that the SEC had. They have surveillance tools and a special market abuse unit that sort of broadens the way they can find insider trading?
3: That's right. The SEC has a market abuse unit, which monitors markets for unusual trading, especially around merger announcements. And so they will examine activity in the stock market, the option markets, and they will look for unusual amounts of trading. And if they find unusual amounts of trading right before the merger, then they might do a further investigation. And so I suspect that the SEC was tipped off by the fact that Clark bought significant amounts of call options right around the time the merger was announced, right before the merger was announced. And then they followed up and did an investigation, which uncovered some additional evidence. It was not just the unusual trading that led the SEC to file the case, but uh, Clark liquidated his wife's retirement account. He borrowed a significant amount of money at a 9% interest rate in order to Buy additional call options. Uh, His son bought a significant amount of call options as well. And so there was additional activity that would indicate something suspicious. And I'm sure that through the investigation, the SEC learned that Christopher Clark had a brother in law who worked for the company that had issued the stock that he was trading in. And so that additional piece of information would have led the SEC to suspect that he's getting inside information from within the company.
2: Is it rare for a judge to dismiss a case after all the evidence has come in, so the witnesses have testified, but the jury is not allowed to reach a verdict?
3: It is rare. Judgments as a matter of law typically are not granted before the jury deliberates. And I think part of the reason for this is that we typically allow juries to resolve factual issues. That's something that is part of our system, and uh, the jury is the body that is given the power to decide whether or not it believes there are sufficient facts for the case to succeed and not the judge. The judge also you know, has invested a lot of time in the case, and the jury has been assembled, and so to take the case away from the jury is... Unusual. It does happen from time to time, but it is an unusual event.
2: Because if the judge had let this case go to the jury, there'd be a verdict in place. And now when he's reversed, there wouldn't have to be a whole new trial, right?
3: That's correct. That's correct. And, you know, it's possible the jury would have agreed with the judge and concluded that the SEC had not made its case. And so typically judges will. Even if they have some doubts about the evidence, they'll allow the case to go to trial. They'll see what the jury does. And they have the option after the jury has entered its verdict to uh, reverse the jury's verdict if they believe that the jury's decision was unreasonable. And so um, now we have to reassemble a jury and go through a trial. So that's, that's another reason why judges typically don't grant judgments as a matter of law before the jury hears the case.
2: Do you have any insight as to why the judge here, you know, didn't think that there was enough evidence? I mean, they did have circumstantial evidence.
3: It was circumstantial. And I think that, you know, he may have credited uh, some of the the testimony by the uh, chief accounting officer of the company. So, So apparently William Wright, who was the brother-in-law, didn't get the information about the merger directly because he was not included in the deliberations about the merger. And so he only learned about the merger relatively late in the process from uh, the chief accounting officer, who was his good friend. And the chief accounting officer basically claimed that he did not tell uh, Mr. Wright about the merger until after the decision to agree to the merger offer. And so that could be seen as powerful evidence that the brother-in-law actually didn't have inside information. And if he didn't have inside information, he could not have passed it on to the defendant. So the judge, I think, might have credited that particular testimony and said that there's no basis for determining that Wright had the information to pass on the clerk. Now, the error here, though, is that judges are not supposed to weigh the credibility of evidence. It's possible that the chief accounting officer was not telling the truth. And there is some circumstantial evidence that uh, Mr. Wright, the brother-in-law, knew of the merger before the trading took place. And so, you know, those are facts that the jury could have weighed against the testimony that Wright did not have inside information about the merger.
2: Were defense lawyers looking at the judge's dismissal of the case and sort of making an argument that the SEC needed to have direct evidence of insider trading?
3: I think so. I think that is the basic argument. They were making a higher standard for insider trading charges that you have to have direct evidence of the transfer of inside information from an insider to the person who is trading. I think that was their basic theme. And that's very difficult to prove. That's very difficult for the SEC to prove, especially when you have a a case where the SEC is proceeding civilly, right? The SEC can only bring civil charges and it's seeking monetary penalties against the defendant. In those circumstances, you don't have the high criminal standard of beyond a reasonable doubt. In civil cases, circumstantial evidence, in my view, should be sufficient to establish insider trading violations.
2: So, Jim, what does this decision by the Fourth Circuit stand for? Is it anything beyond this case? I think it
3: stands for the proposition that you can establish that an insider trading defendant had inside information through circumstantial evidence and that those are jury questions typically rather than decisions that should be made by a judge. And so I think it's a fairly narrow proposition. I don't think it's a very broad legal proposition. Um, I think, though, it is an instructive decision for district courts, not only in the Fourth Circuit but across the country, that when there is disputed circumstantial evidence as to whether an insider trading defendant had inside information, that typically should be decided by a jury rather than a judge.
2: Are the circuits in agreement on this? Are there any circuits that have contrary decisions? Not to
3: my knowledge. It's always possible, but I, I, I think that this is um, a sensible decision. And I think it's one where um, I think other circuits would most likely agree that this should be the rule. And and the reason why it might be a somewhat unusual decision is that most of the time defendants in the situation are going to settle the case. They're going to agree to a settlement and so the case doesn't go to trial. There are very few cases that actually go to trial relative to the number of insider trading cases that are brought. And, you know, it's interesting that uh, William Wright, the brother-in-law, he actually settled with the SEC and paid $240,000. To the sec to settle the case uh christopher clark though decided to fight the charges and that's why we um, have this decision which looks very carefully at um, all of the relevant facts that doesn't happen every day and so i think that it's um i think if other circuits looked at the same facts they would come to the same uh conclusion um but there there probably are not a whole lot of other cases that have had the opportunity to uh, examine this particular type of situation.
2: And what kind of testimony did the FCC have at trial?
3: You know, that's a, that's a good question, actually. It's not apparent from the Fourth Circuit's opinion because um, it's only reviewing the record as opposed to uh, the, the, um, the the sort of what, what right. might have happened at trial since the trial did not actually occur. And so... You know, I'm sure, um, you know, it is a good question. You know, my, my guess is that William Wright might have testified, actually, because he settled with the SEC. And so the brother-in-law might have been the person that they might have called as a, as a witness. Um, they also had some evidence um, in email, uh, various emails that indicated that Wright knew uh, about the merger discussions before the trading occurred. And so they might have introduced uh, the testimony of uh, the the people who got those emails. So that might be uh, another option. Um, but you're right; there that might have been a reason why the district court may have felt like it wanted it it it, it should have should dismiss the case because the um, you know the, the number of witnesses who would have testified would have been fairly small um, in support of the SEC's case.
2: So on retrial, the defense attorney said, quote, the witnesses who testified at the trial overwhelmingly demonstrated Mr. Clark's innocence, and we look forward to the retrial because the evidence will not change. But my question is, the evidence might not change, but will the SEC lawyers perhaps shore up their presentation, address the weaknesses that the judge saw on the first trial in a retrial?
3: I think they will. You always learn um, from a first trial. And I think that they will take the opportunity to put on a clearer case, a stronger case. And you never know how a jury is going to look at the evidence. We don't know how this jury would have looked at the evidence. And so I think that they will have learned from what happened in uh, the first case. And there's a very good possibility there could be a conviction in this trial.
2: For years, these insider trading cases keep popping up where, you know, the standard is questioned. It seems like that area of the law is always in flux.
3: It's very much in flux. It is very unclear. And that's why insider trading cases can be controversial, especially when criminal charges have been brought. I think in this case, though, that if the facts are true, then it's very clear that Clark would be guilty of insider trading. If it's true that he had inside information from a close relative, his brother-in-law, um, that typically is sufficient, um, given that William Wright was an insider of the company with, with various fiduciary duties not to disclose that information to uh, outsiders. And so I think in this case, we, we see that there are not only ambiguities about what the law is on insider trading, they're also ambiguities as to the fact uh, and whether or not somebody actually has inside information.
2: So the defense attorneys made reference to the fact that the Department of Justice declined to prosecute here. Does that say anything?
3: It's a good point. Um, But as I said before, there may not have been enough to establish criminal charges. It may not be that we can conclude beyond a reasonable doubt that Christopher Clark had inside information from William Wright, but we might be able to conclude, based upon a lower preponderance of the evidence standard, that he did have that inside information. And so I think that the defense attorney's argument here is not a strong one. I think the fact that we didn't have criminal charges does not necessarily mean that civil charges are not appropriate. It's an interesting case because of the way the SEC found it through their monitoring activities. It's also interesting that the SEC lost at the lower court because the SEC typically wins cases like this. And so it's, it's an unusual and interesting case, and um, it'll be interesting to see what actually happens at trial.
2: Thanks so much for being on the show, Jim. That's Professor James Park of UCLA Law School.